Welcome to an impromptu Abbey Talks podcast episode with schoolbook scribbler, costume designer and teacher Peter O'Brien and myself, Lisa Farley, dedicated follower of fashion and coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. If you've come across this podcast and thought, fantastic, at last an academic insight into the fabric of design, you might want to click on. However, hold on, what unfolds will keep you on the line. It's a glimpse into the rich tapestry of a life lived, in design, in beauty, in Dior, in Paris. It's an Elizabeth Taylor kind of life. It's being Peter O'Brien. So play on. Peter O'Brien, you are costume designer for the current production on the Abbey stage, Hedda Gabler. Um, how does this begin? Um, Fiat McAneel rings you up and uh, sends you a contract or sends you the script? Um, that's really how it begins. You, I, got a, I did get a phone call from Fiat. Um, I had worked with Annabelle before, who directed um, Hedda. Annabelle and I had done three plays before together. Um, and you do develop a kind of a working rapport with the director. Um, Annabelle and I were both control freaks, but um, we kind of trust each other now. So um, I was delighted when they asked me. And plus, OK, I get the phone call from Fiat and then I meet up with Annabelle. And it's important for me to know how she sees the production, um, what her take on it is, how she sees it visually, aesthetically. Um, how she sees Hedda as a character. We had long, long talks and I made lots of notes. And there's always a kind of moment when it becomes clear what she wants. And she had on her computer a photograph of a sofa from 1880, I think. And it looked very contemporary. It looked like it could have been bought in Habitat yesterday. And she said, that's the kind of aesthetic I want. It's Victorian, but not. So that's the way I went with the costumes. Um, so the costumes are almost like a distillation of Victorian costume, but they're none of them are academically correct. They're not reproductions of 1880 dresses at all. The nearest one would be Aunt Jules, because I felt she was the most conservative, if you like, of the characters, which is why I, I gave her a reasonably accurate dress, you know, depiction of a dress from 1880. But headers are complete inventions. Well, that's what I was going to ask. And now I will hold my hands up and say that I, I know nothing and have, have displayed over the years no um, experience or, or um, a display for fashion. But when you design for theatre, I would think that you do have to remain faithful to that era. And yet you're taking it from a current standpoint. So there has to be a contemporary feel like um, it, it truly depends. I mean, there are directors I've worked with who really want you to get as close as possible to depicting the period in which the play is being set. Um, I've worked with other directors who don't, and they're quite happy that you do your own take on it. I think what happens is if you look at, say, films made in the 50s that are supposed to be in the 20s, the women all have conical brows and, you know, thick eyebrows. And they, they, you know it's been made in the 50s. I think that thing unconsciously happens. The, the aesthetic influences of the time in which you're designing creep in, whether you want them to or not. Unless you're an absolute purist, like someone like Piero Tossi, who's probably the greatest costume designer ever, and who did a lot of Visconti movies. And he's an amazing designer. And he was obsessive about it being as accurate as possible. Um, with Hedda, that wasn't the case. Uh, I did loads of research. Um, I looked at lots of Scandinavian design. I looked at lots of fashion from 1875 to about 1890. And 
we had decided that had you know all these men are in love with Hedda, so she obviously had to have some charm and there was something about her. Catherine's very beautiful, so that made it easy in a sense. But I wanted her to be kind of uptight. So her clothes are very covered. She's completely covered up all the time, but kind of cheekily sexy as well. Like her her dressing gown at the beginning flows and it's very voluminous at the back, but it's very, very fitted in the front. So you can absolutely see she's a beautiful figure. Um, her second dress is really more like John Paul Gaultier or Yoji Yamamoto than pure Victorian. She's wearing her corset on the outside, um, which is kind of emphasizing you know, that underwear, outerwear thing. Yeah. And her last dress um, is kind of a Victorian morning dress, but almost as if it was designed by Charles James or some great mid-20th century couturier. Not to say I'm a great designer, <laughs> but that was kind of where I was going with it. I love that notion of a woman being utterly covered, you know, mm. um, and with this mad explosion of black chilled area behind. Yeah. Um, but it's really sexy I think because I think Hedda even though she can't give herself there's something well there's something terribly attractive about people who won't give themselves anyway so Hedda is really I thought she should look sexy you know but not in an obvious vulgar way does that make any sense that makes perfect sense I suppose because you you persist after those who resist and um, and I'll follow that thought by asking you about the colours and the palettes that you used and what you're talking to Annabelle and, and you're... Well, you're, and Paul, of course. Yes, and Paul, I was going to say, and it has I to tie at, in. I look at Paul's uh, drawings. I look at the, the, the little set he's working on. We looked at colours together. Um, I, and I know Annabelle's taste. You know, you do develop a kind of, You know. And I know Hedda was never going to be in fuchsia pink yeah. with satin frills. It was never going to be that kind of show, which made me really happy because... If people are doing posh frock shows, they tend to ask me to do them. And I have longed and longed to do a show whereby, you know, the costumes could be buried for six months in a garden or dipped in tea. Or, <laughs> really? Yeah, because it's so, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, Peter O'Brien's doing another show with posh frocks. So what I liked about this was, I think, I hope it showed, they're very quiet posh frocks. Like There's nothing mm. flashy about them. So we didn't want bright colours and I wanted it kind of almost monastic in a way and that's kind of the way I went with the colours you know but definitely I had looked at colours Paul was using for the couch mm. for the curtains for the wood so uh, one would bear all of that in mind when, when you know when choosing fabrics and when you're contrasting the characters against each other <clears throat> I mean I think there was an intake of breath uh, when when Kate came on stage as, as Thea her impossibly thin waist when you're when you're when you're comparing uh, Hedda and Thea. Uh, where do you go with that? Well, I thought uh, Hed, this, Hedda has this kind of rigour in the way she dresses. There isn't an ounce of anything that you don't need. And that even the pleats and the tulle in her two second and third act dress and her last dress, they're kind of underneath and they only explode when she moves. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought Kate, um, Thea would be a little bit busier, um, but again, I didn't want it to look like, you know, a kind of happy, shiny, blingy, you know, musical kind of dress. So we, I used menswear fabric. So her dress is in menswear pinstripe fabric, okay. which immediately brings it down to something more somber. Yeah. Um, the decoration was some antique lace, which we had found in a box upstairs here at the Abbey. 
Um, it did seem less fluid and she seemed more restricted. And the lace I have, the lace, I mean, I know this sounds like pretentious garbage, but I loved because I think all women were prisoners in those clothes, you know, mm. and the lace is almost like hands cl <gasps> clutching at at yeah. Thea, which is kind of what I wanted. Um, I mean, I never I never normally say these kind of things because it can sound so pretentious. You know, I remember once um, seeing an old um, Melvin Bragg a documentary about Francis Bacon. And, and I'm really paraphrasing, but Melvin Bragg said to Francis Bacon, um, ba why do you paint like this? You know, and Bacon said, well, you know, if I could tell you that I wouldn't have to paint the paintings. So I feel not that I in any way compare myself to Francis Bacon, but what I, I do what I do very instinctively. I mean, I'm much more an instinctive designer than I would be someone who's overly cerebral and thinks about things for I do a bit of that and then I just forget about it and I go ahead and I draw it. So, but it was the idea, I loved the idea of them all being a bit imprisoned. Even Aunt Jewel with her double sleeves, I kind of feel like she's, she's being held in, you know. And instinctually, do you, who do you design for, men or women? You mentioned... Definitely women. I, and I hmm. think... Hmm. Uh, I've no idea why this is. I, I mean, when I, was, when I was a little boy, I used to draw ladies in big ball gowns on my school books. I really did. Um, in fact, I, I, I was at a fashion event when I worked in Paris. We, we did a fashion show here in Dublin and I came back and a guy I had been at school with, his daughter was one of the models in the show and he had kept one of my school books. And he gave it to me. I, I don't know how he'd had it. And I had written the names of all the designers in all the Paris houses. And I had done drawings of women on runways. I mean, I must what have been age you, then? 11, 10, 11, 12, maybe. Um, so I was a strange little boy, you know. I mean, I, I used to watch old black and white movies and try and figure. But my father really disapproved of television. So I used to see it in our next door neighbor's house. And I used to try and figure out if the sequins on John Crawford's dresses were flat or cup sequins or yeah, I mean, it was a, I was much more passionate about it than I would be today. Um, yeah. I was obsessed with women's clothes. My father had four very chic sisters. I thought they were very chic and they used to go to what in back in those days were called dress dances, which, you know, they would wear long evening dresses. Um, and my mum was very chic. My mum had a very chic sister. Um, yeah, there were a lot of women around, you know. Um, so what, what is your background, Peter? Where were you born? Well, I was born in London. My parents had gone to run away to London to get married. Um, we came back, lived in Dunleary for a while. Um, I suppose my, my dad's father would have been a police sergeant in Dunleary. My mother's father died. He was quite elderly and he died before I was born. They lived in, in Stony Batter in Arbor Hill. I suppose we would have been basically, I suppose, lower middle class, I suppose. Um, my dad kind of pissed off, as was the want of Irish husbands. And um, so we ended up living in Finglas. And, in, in, and uh, I must have been a horrible, snobbish little boy because I, I kind of, I mean, I'm mortified about it now, but I, I really felt that I should have lived somewhere else, you know, and I used to dream about living in Paris or in London or... So you felt different, you felt... I did, I thought I was odd. Um, and I remember thinking the things I was interested in, and which is terrible, I teach now out at IADT, so I'm kind of passionate about teaching. And still I feel, you know, there aren't enough kids from working class areas who get into, you know, art education. Um, but I remember thinking that things like bookshops and theatres and were for posh people. Um, Happily, you know, my father's family had all been quite educated and there were, there were books around. So 
it wasn't my family who made me feel that, but I think kind of living in a working class area, you you are kind of made to feel that it's not your world, you know. Uh, and, and I think Dublin snobbery is possibly the worst on the entire planet. Um, I did feel odd and strange, and so I, I longed to escape. So where do you go from 11-year-old boy drawn on copybooks? I worked in Arnott. I left school when I was 14. Um, I worked in Arnott's and in Best's on a Street and window display. Then I went to Arnott's. Um, and I, I had, at one point, I had done these big drawings. Yves Saint Laurent had done, done his famous 1940s fashion show. So I drew all these ladies in 40s dresses. And a guy from Medell Rootstein, which was a mannequin company, he said to me, you should really go to London. So I did. I was 19, I think. I went off to London and I worked in Alders of Croydon in window display. And then I got a job in Marshall and Snellgroves, which is now Debenhams in Oxford Street. And when I was about 22, 23, I sent drawings to Eve Pollard, who was the editor of one of the Sunday tabloids. She's um, that girl from Strictly Come Dancing's mother, the girl who wears the black eyeliner with the black hair, who is really bright. And she does an arts movie program as well. Claudia Winkleman's mother. Anyway. Oh, right. OK. Um, so I sent her drawings and she took me to lunch and she said, I think you're very talented. You should go either be uh, an apprentice to a fashion designer or apply to St. Martin's. So I applied to college. Um, I suppose fools rush in and I had a handful of grubby drawings and because I'd worked in London I got a full grant and I was accepted on foundation then I applied to fashion I did a three-year fashion degree course at St Martin's and then I did a year's postgraduate at Parsons School of Design in New York so I was 28, 29 when I graduated so I thought I was so old and then I went off to Paris. So you really had a, a course of study did, did you ever envision where your life was going to take you because it's such, it seems like such a huge departure from, you know, boy from Finglas goes to Paris. Um, I just, I never thought, I, I always think it's a shame I wasn't born with, you know, the killer instinct or real drive. I've always felt I've kind of floated along on in my little canoe in the sort of river of life. I've never been hugely ambitious or even driven. I mean, I've always preferred... That sounds extraordinary to me because to, to be successful in your area, you would think you have think to. I be. So I think you would, I would imagine that you would have a different type of instinct almost to overcompensate for that. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I know people who are hugely successful, people like Tom Ford, for example. And if you talk to Tom, uh, he has he has that wonderful thing that very often Americans have. He has no self-doubt of any kind, none. Uh, and I remember saying to him once, you know, when you talk to journalists and you say lime green is emotional or this season it's about the ankle, do you go home and titter to yourself? And he kind of looked at me blankly, you know, because I, I think I think I, I'm I don't have that, you know, unquenchable lack of, you know, that that mad drive. And, and I certainly am rid three hours riddled with self-doubt, you know. Um, and plus, you know, when I was at college or even when I had a job, it was always more important to be madly in love with someone to have a bigger job or, you know, some dreadful love affair. You'd be away, you know, drinking champagne, feeling sorry for yourself instead of designing the next collection. I've I've never been hugely driven. I mean, it's I can't believe I'm telling you. I love this. This is fantastic. And, no, and, 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 well, and did you follow that route? Did you fall madly in love and, and, oh, and, and the left the ambitions yeah. oh, to the God, side? Yeah, like, yeah, I that like, must have fueled your work. I was, I was your like work. Elizabeth Taylor, you know, I married them all. You know. 
serial monogamy. Yes, God, I loved being in love. Yeah, um, I was always there was always a drama. It was always disaster, terrible. You know, um, I had very unrealistic expectations of of love. You know. Um, but no, all I, expectations of love are unrealistic. They are, but uh, you know, I I ended up in Paris, and um, I remember, and it's really clear. Uh, my first job was at Dior. I had gone over with um, some friends from Saint Martin's, and we used to stay in this really grotty hotel called the Hotel Saint Anne, Hotel Mary in the Rue Saint Anne, and we used to stay there because it was opposite the club set. The club set was the coolest club in the world at the time. And this would have been when we used to go over. I graduated, so it would have been eight, 1979, 1980, 81. And everyone used to go, Yves Saint Laurent, Betty Catru and Antonio and Kenzo, every, all the models used to go. It was 50 francs for a drink. I always remember this, which was about a fiver, which was a fortune to us. But because we were young and reasonably decorative, we used to get kind of get in for free. And we were students and we used to kind of dress up in mad student clothes. And we would steal people's drinks while they were dancing. Terrible. I mean, when I think of it. Um, but anyway, <laughs> off we went and we stayed in the Hotel Mary, which was basically a knocking shop. And we would ring up the various fashion houses and say, Je suis en styliste, dear Londay. Anyway, I got an interview at Dior. They said start on Monday. So I went back to London on the magic bus, packed my bag, went back on the magic bus and I started on the Monday at Dior. I was a little assistant in this studio at Dior. Um, and I remember what they did, the, the magazines covered the collections. Ready to Wear is in March and September and the Couture collections are in January and July. And it was July. It was around the time Diana got married. I remember they brought a TV into the studio. Um, and there was a photo shoot on the Alexandre, on the bridge Alexandre Trois of three models in ball gowns. And there was André Leontale from Women's Wear Daily and me and some other assistants, hairdressers, makeups. And I remember standing on the bridge thinking, this is unreal. I feel like Kay Thompson in Funny Face, you know. I mean, I'm in Paris. I'm on a fashion shoot for the House of Dior. It was amazing. So I think I've been beyond lucky. I mean, I've had a fantastic life. I was going to say how, how much uh, luck plays a part in your life, if, because if you're not, if you don't have that killer instinct, is that how your life has kind I of I think unraveled? I'm, pro and this will sound like the most arrogant thing you've ever heard in your life. I think I'm probably very good at what I do. Uh, that's, isn't that a terrible thing no, to say? No, I think that's honest. It's taken me... I think you're very modest. It's taken well. me more than 50 years to be able to say this. Um, I think I'm good at what I do. And that's probably why I got away with being such a flake when it came to drive and ambition. Uh, I honestly do. Mm. I think had I had the drive and ambition, I'd probably be, you know, I would own three houses in Kalini and a house in Eaton Square, but I never had the killer instinct. And when I earned money, I spent it, you know. There were too many black Prada suits to buy and too many bottles of Guerlain perfume and too many people to fall in love with. Mm. And Well, you're living. Yeah. You know, so you're working for these fashion houses, Dior. And so how, where does the switch come? To theatre? Yeah. I'd always liked theatre. Um, I'd always been interested in theatre. Um, initially it was musical, and this is going to make me sound so naff, because I know theatre people often find musical theatre isn't even real theatre. Um, but I'm a complete Sondheim anorak, so, um, you know, when we were at college, I would go and see everything in the West End, you know. Uh, and straight, straight theatre as well. I just, I've always liked theatre. I like actors. I like, I would sit in an empty theatre and just look at the stage. I like the whole aspect of theatre. I like the dressing up. I like, uh, and I always read theatrical biographies. So I'm crazy to know about Binky Beaumont and, you know, Alec Guinness and John Gilgan and all that shit. I mean, I love all of that. Um, and I always thought I'd love to design. And 
Film costume has always been a huge obsession of mine. So I used to, you know, know all about Adrian and Travis Banton and all those Hollywood designers. And I remember, I remember when I was probably, I don't know, about eight, seven, maybe my Auntie Etna took me to see Oklahoma at the pavilion. And there's a dream sequence in Oklahoma where Laurie, you know, f dreams and there, there are these wicked saloon girls. And I always remember she has a gingham dress. It's mauve and white cotton gingham. And when it, she becomes the dream Laurie and it's actually a dancer, dancing her. The dress turns into chiffon, you know, and I was astonished by that. But I loved the saloon girls because they were all in these kind of peacock tail feather, kind of iridescent taffetas and black jet. And they were Aryan sheriff costumes, but they really, I was obsessed with them. So I always thought, how would I do theatre costume? And I know Christian Lacroix had done quite a lot. Yves Saint Laurent had done quite a lot. And I moved home. I moved home in 2005. Um, the company I'd worked for had gotten sold. They wanted a new, young, trendy designer. I was out of a job. Um, Aware had offered me a really good contract to do a collection for their chain of stores. I thought, and I'd always thought I might come home, so I did. And Mary Rooney, who'd worked with Michael Colgan, had seen some of my drawings on Claudia Carroll's wall, and she thought they were very theatrical. And she suggested to Michael, and Michael called me and said, "Would I do a play?" And Alan Stanford was directing Lady Windermere's Fan, which he was setting in 1947, the year of the new look. And he said, would you like to do it? And I said, I would love to do it. And I've never looked back. I can't believe it's that recent. To yes, be it's that recent. Yeah. I, I, and it's very funny. I mean, I, I, the, the year they gave me the Irish Times Award for um, the Maeve Brennan play and for, uh, for um, A Woman of No Importance. And I said this, and I still feel it. I feel like a bit of an interloper, you know. And, you, and I, I often think, oh, I'm sure theatre people think, you know, he's only just a fashion designer and he's not a real costume designer. So that's why I kind of, that's why I was happy to do this, because there was no jewels, there was no satin, there were no trains. They were very quiet, understated costumes. So I thought maybe I can show people what I can do, not uh, just Is that the frogs. difference? Is that, that, what's the difference then um, between, I suppose, um, designing for fashion and designing for theatre. The, de um, the, the delicacy is in one and... They're, the very, they're very linked, but in theatre you design for character. I mean, it's all about character. Uh, you design... I think the job of a costume designer is to make the actor feel happy, comfortable and empowered in a sense to play the role to the best of their ability. I mean, it's not about the designer's vanity. It really can't be. Um, and you're hoping, you know, a really great actor is never of any vanity. So there, it's... If the role calls for them to be beautiful, then it's important. But if the role doesn't, they have to, you know, wave goodbye to their vanity. But it's absolutely about designing for character. Um, and then you come into the nitty gritty of practicalities. Is it going to be hard wearing? Are they going to sweat too much? How they, do they get in and out of it? Is there a quick change? Is that train too long? Is the other actor going to walk on it? Will the, that fabric change colour under the lights? There are all of these things which you don't have to consider when you're designing fashion. Um, but the nice thing about costume is you don't have to put it in a showroom and hope that the buyers from Bergdorf Goodman are going to buy it. So that's the upside. You have your buyer walking across the stage each yeah, and every night. Yeah, so that once it's done, it's done, you know. And then obviously that durability dictates the design as well. Um, talk to me about the collaboration then between um, you and the Abbey. Oh, well, it's wonderful. Uh, I mean, I, this is only the second time I've worked with the Abbey. Um, so I worked with Neve, and Neve is the most fabulously organised person in the world. And Neve will tell you what you can and can't have. That's usually in terms of budget. I mean, you know, there are always budgets. 
And if you work in a fashion house, there are always budgets too. So, um, and then I would work, I suppose, more directly with the, with the women up in the cutting room, Marion and Donna, um, and then with Shifra, Neve, Donna, Marion. We will look for fabric samples. Um, your fabric samples, you look um, really based on your budget. So if you don't have a huge amount of money, you'll go to somewhere like Fukutex in Germany who do virtually everything for reasonable price. If you have a bit more budget, you might shop in London. You, I, last time I did Pygmalion, Neve and I went off to London to Soho to buy fabrics. Um, but, you know, it's it's really in their hands. Um, so I would spend a lot of time up in in the cutting room doing fittings. Um, and the other thing is, uh, every costume designer will tell you this. Directors never want you to have the actors for fittings. Directors imagine that the costumes will be miraculously made. They will fit beautifully, never having given you an actor. So this is invariably a battle. So it's really 11th hour th- stuff that they actually do. They do there, give you the actor, but mm. you would love more fittings. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the time in the rehearsal room is precious. Mm. So it's always, you know, fitting in the fittings between, you know, the actor's schedule. Um, so that's it. You know, the girls here do everything. I, I do the easy bit. I do drawings. They, they do the hard bit. Has there ever been an endeavour that has just gone so dreadfully wrong for you that, that you've learned so much from, but then... Yeah, you're I, there I, sketching I, I, or you're just thinking, oh, I've got this so wrong, you know, or, or this is, I'm just, um, well, I think you learn from your mistakes. and. Oh, it does happen. Um, I, I mean, I did one production, which I won't mention because it would be indelicate for the director and the actors and everybody else. But um, it was one I wasn't very happy with. And I think I, I don't think I did a very good job in the costumes. Um, no, I know I didn't. Uh, because I think... My heart wasn't in it. Uh, it just seemed about to be about a lot of compromise. And without being a diva or digging your heels in, I think that 99 times out of 100, one's instincts are right about a colour, a costume, a fabric. Uh, so you went along with someone else's ideas rather yes, than your and own it, instincts? Yes, and, and I was right and they were wrong. And the costume looked terrible. And I should have been brave enough to say no. And have you learned? And have you learned? To oh yeah, say I, no? I, well, I do say no now, politely, but I will. Yes. And is that instinct always fueled by a passion? Oh God, I think um, I. You know, no one gets rich in theatre unless you know you you design the set for Mamma Mia and you decide to take 00.001% of the box office and then, you know, you make a fortune. But you don't get rich in theatre, so you, you have to be passionate about it. And sure, there are days, and Neve will tell you, you think, I'm never doing another play, I cannot bear it, it's impossible, nothing's right. But, yeah, and the minute it's over, it's wonderful. And you, it's, I guess, like having a baby, really. Uh, women always say that, you know, you, you um, not that I would say having a doing a play is nearly as important but um, yes of course you're really passionate about it absolutely well, it's, it, it, they are your children I suppose well they are that, in a way I remember of... the first play I did I mean I used to go in every night and kind of shush up the skirts you know And but I mean you, you have to let it go and costumes do get bashed up you know it's the life of a costume there's no garment in the world that anybody buys that they change so many times mm. and put on and off and in heat like this so they do get bashed up so opening night was last night. Yes. Your job is finished. It is. until Yes, it is. Um, it's very odd. Uh, 
because you spend a lot of time, especially during Tech Week, um, seeing all these people and working as a team. Uh, they, the, the actors and the, the, the tech people from, from the Abbey or from whatever theatre it is, continue to do the play because, you know, they have a run. But you're kind of left adrift, so uh, it's on to the next one. You can kind of understand why people often say that uh, on film or in, in, in plays, there's a kind of an intense connection because you have to kind of make, there's a kind of shorthand in how you make re connections with people because you have to do it very quickly and in a very kind of condensed space of time. So you can understand why love affairs happen and that kind of thing. Not that it's ever happened to me, well, I'm too ancient now anyway. Oh um, but uh, you can and you do feel a bit kind of bereft when it's over because they still get to play the characters and they don't need you anymore. And when you're sitting in the auditorium, like you were a row behind me last night, are you are you are you critical or are you? Oh, absolutely! You want to get up and you want to fix a buttonhole and you want to turn the skirt around half a centimeter because you can see that the zip isn't on the exact center of the hip and yeah, things like that. Yeah, you can't you can't let it go. You you do you watch. And do you resist that urge the next day to say, Neve, I just had a few suggestions. No, no. Just... I mean, if it's something major, yeah. obviously, but yeah. if it's a little thing, if it's just me and the blind horse who noticed it, no, I let it go. <laughs> you do you really do have to let it go. Were you mentored? Um, I you... had a, a two, three people. Um, I had a wonderful teacher at St. Martin's called Colin Barnes, who was a fashion illustrator. He used to teach us life drawing. He was huge and large and, and long, wonderful hands. And he was terribly, terribly grand. And we thought he was terribly old. He was probably 45, you know. Uh, and he was wonderful and he was such a brilliant teacher and I adored him. And I was very lucky he became a really good friend. And there was an illustrator in New York. I love drawings m almost more than paintings. Um, an illustrator in New York who worked for Women's Wear Daily and he was a friend of a friend of mine and uh, he's kind of my hero. His name is Kenneth Paul Block. And he was kind of a huge inspiration. And the third person was uh, Francois Lesage, who was the who, the owner of the great embroidery house in Paris. And he was wonderful. Uh, when I did my couture in Paris, you know, he kind of gave me embroidery for free. And he was wonderful because he was 85 when he died and he worked up to the very end and he'd worked with everybody, you know, everybody. And during the war, his father had sent him to Hollywood to open an embroidery business out there, you know, branch of the business for the movies. So he was wonderful. He was the best dinner companion in the world. Fantastic. Yeah, so I was lucky, you know, and but having a good teacher is so important. You know, Colin was Colin kind of changed my life and really taught me to draw. So uh, I tried to be the Mr. Chips of costume design out in IADT. I'm probably um, I'm probably too nice to them and I don't shout at them enough. But, <laughs> but they're they great. And the odd thing is, when you work with kids, um, you get I think I get more from them than they get from me. You know, they're brilliant. If you could encapsulate what you wanted to pass on to them, what it's would that be? to be passionate and curious. You have to be curious. You have to... Re I remember, you know, um, I was so obsessed, much more than I am now, but I wanted to know everything, you know. I wanted to know what was the difference between crepe de chine and double crepe, and I wanted to know how velvet was woven, and I wanted to know how you made a circle skirt and what was the bias. Um, yeah, just to make them curious, you know, because... The, the problem with the, the, the general, and I sound like an old man when I say this, but the whole kind of internet thing, people often have kind of relatively broad, broad swathe of knowledge, but everyone knows the same stuff, you know.
and, and you long for people to go deeper, you know. I mean, Pinterest will only take you so far. Uh, my my, fav- my favourite writer, the wonderful Fran Lebowitz, you know, this, you know, the grumpy, you know, Jewish, wonderful lesbian Fran Lebowitz, who I love and adore. I mean, she hates everything. Um, but she, there was, she did a brilliant interview with um, Elle magazine last month about um, mood boards and how she hates them. And I'm allergic to mood boards. She, and she said, it's ridiculous. Why do people think they're being creative by putting other people's ideas on a board? She said, you know, if writers did it, she said, I'd put a bit of Dickens here, you know, and a, a bit it's of Proust here. She said, it's a stealing board. Mm. It's not a mood. So I hate mood boards. They're my, they're my bet noir. I hate them. You talk about your curious, about having, you know, hoping for that curiosity in, 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 the, in the future generation. Has your curiosity been satisfied? Do you keep referring no, you to the always, fact that, you know, you, you were more passionate more. back then? Only because I think, um, well, you know, is that wonderful, Vita Sackville West, um, little novella, All Passion Spent. God, I hope I haven't reached that stage. But I, I love that book. Um, no, All Passion isn't spent at all. But I think those things become less urgent as you get older. Um, and it also becomes your job. So I think there's, but I'm just, I mean, I still can, you know, I, I watched um, a clip that Dior had made on how they did a pleated skirt with appliqued grosgrain ribbons for the last haute couture. There's a wonderful clip on YouTube and it's um, because Raph Simmons designs Dior now. And I wept looking at it. It's so beautiful because you see these men and women in their blues blanche. You know, they're like dentist jackets. And when you because we live in such a technocracy, when you see people doing extraordinary things with their, it makes me cry. I mean, that makes me sound like such an idiot. But I really it makes Oh, it's a craft. But I really those ladies make me weep. They really do. When people do beautiful things with their hands or, you know, you go to an exhibition um, and you see this faintingly incredible dress by I don't know Madeleine Vianney which was made in 1932 and it looks like it could have been made yesterday oh yeah I definitely get a little tear in my eye no I'm very I'm I love beautiful things. And oh, yeah, I was going to say, I imagine your life just so <laughs> you, you, or that you surround yourself in beauty. I try to, yeah. I mean, listen, I, I have horrible flat pack furniture in my house. It's appalling. <laughs> I'm mortified by it. You know, I should be like Karl Lagerfeld and live with all this wonderful 18th century furniture. That's or, what I imagine. No, I'm not rich enough to live with 18th century furniture. Uh, but I have lots of books. Lots and lots and lots. You know, some people have a drug habit. I have a book habit. It's terrible. You know, if I have X, X euro left to my account at the end of the month and I go into Hodges and Fidge and there's a book that I love that's, you know, 10X, I buy it, which is why I flat pack furniture, basically, and far too many books. You can't get into my flat. <laughs> Peter Brown, I had no idea you would be like this. I had really? this impression of you having never spoken to you before, only saying hello to you on the stairs. Um, I, I thought you might be a bit of a diva and fashion uh, makes me... I fear fashion slightly. Um, I'm so only I'm a diva really... about bad manners, people bellowing into mobile phones on buses, ugly shoes. What? What's Irish ugly? men wear oh, very ugly shoes. Controversial, Peter. No, Brown. Irish men wear terrible shoes. In general, you know, you those, about they're on? usually they're usually marmalade color. The boys who work in the offices, you know, around Mesbury Road, mm. they're usually marmalade color, and they usually have a very extended toe, yes, which them. ends in a square. Yes. and very often, like rumpled stillskin, yeah. they turn up a bit. They're so yeah, shoes, bad shoes. I'm not mad about. But don't get me started on things. I'm worse than Brian. Brian Sewell is like little Mary Sunshine compared to me. Oh, really? really? Oh, yeah, I'm a grumpy old shite. Well, Am you, I allowed to say you, that? You, yeah, yeah, let's go with that. You haven't yeah. come across with that at all. Yeah. Um, and it's been a pleasure talking to Thank you. Thank you, I do too. Thank you, Peter O'Brien. Thank you.